Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. Thanks for being here. I'm your host, Chris Hill. Joining me in studio this week from Motley Fool One, Jason Moser. From Motley Fool Hidden Gems, Chief Investment Officer here at the Motley Fool, Andy Cross. Wow. And from Million Dollar Portfolio. <laughs> The very impressed Ron Gross. Ron, hey, see you guys. See, the sea games in the house, Ron. Uh, earnings Palooza rolls on. We've got the latest results from Visa, MasterCard, Facebook, and more. We've got one iconic brand getting a serious makeover. We will delve into that. And as always, we've got a few stocks on our radar. But we begin this week with the big macro. The latest unemployment report is out. 165,000 jobs added in April as the unemployment rate drops to 7.5%. And Ron... February and March numbers revised upwards, an additional 114,000 jobs. We got the Dow and S&P both hitting new record highs on Friday. What, what's not to love? Oh, Chris. <laughs> Do you want me to jump on the bandwagon or you want the truth? What are we doing here? Uh, that's, right, no. that's why I asked you what's not to love, because so. I knew you'd come back with something not to love. Here's what I, what I really think. I think this report is... Uh, good enough to show that the recovery has installed. And that's what you're seeing in the markets. You're seeing kind of that relief because, you know, on, on any given month, this could go either way. We have only two, two and a half percent economic growth right here, seven and a half percent on unemployment even after this. Um, things still aren't great. In fact, that labor force participation rate is flat. The broader measure of unemployment is actually up a little tick. Um, so I'm happy to see we're not falling backwards. But I mean, I'm not popping champagne corks yet. Uh, Jason, we were talking earlier in the week, the whole uh, the old investing adage, sell in May and go away. When you look at the reaction of the market on Friday, as a result of this, this, this kind of pops that balloon a little bit, doesn't it? Maybe a little bit, but hey, we're not Europe. So, I mean, it's, <laughs> I, mean I think a lot of what Ron said is, is pretty much how I feel, too. I mean, there's good news in there that the unemployment rate's coming down and that the average wage is going up. Uh, concerns about the broader unemployment U6 uh, ticking up a little bit. There's some question there as to the quality of the jobs that are out there and, and whether those can really sustain a, a robust recovery. And, and I think there's a boots-on-the-ground dynamic that we all have to recognize at some point. You just kind of look around, and it doesn't seem like everything is back to just uh, square one yet. But with that said, I think that uh, the Fed's going to keep their foot on the gas, and that makes the stock market really one of the best places, if not the best place, to find the returns. And so I, I, anticipate, I anticipate the sell in May uh, go away adage to not be so applicable this summer. Yeah, Andy, I mean, when you look around at all the investing options people have, uh, for better or for worse, the U.S. stock market continues to look like the best yeah, option. Yeah, for better, really, for better. I mean, like, I, you know, you look at this number, Private payrolls up 176,000, um, which is up over over the revised number from March, both higher than economists forecast. I mean, the U.S. economy is doing okay. I mean, like pri- the private growth, the private GDP number is somewhere like four percent. It's the it's the government. It's both federal, state, and and local government level that we're, where we're really seeing a lot of the the struggle. So the U.S. economy stocks aren't aren't all that expensive. They've had a nice run, obviously, but when you look around the world and you look at the what investors can get from bonds. Really, uh, investing in stock still remains the best way to go. You know, we're right in the smack middle of earnings season here. And I think, in general, what we're seeing is kind of low revenue growth, but pretty good profit growth. And that's because companies are kind of lean and mean still. And you can see that in the unemployment rate. Companies are really not hiring in any big way. And they don't really have an incentive to yet. 
um, because they have the, you know the benefit of, of bringing a lot of this this anemic revenue growth to the bottom line, and so the, the cycle continues. We're not going to hire profits grow. We're not going to hire profits grow. We need to kind of break that cycle. All right, let's get into some of the earnings that you reference. Facebook's first quarter, kind of a mixed bag, Andy. Revenue up 38%. That was better than expected, but profit up just under 7%. They missed there. And yet, it seemed like from an expectation standpoint, uh, people were pleased. Shares were up 5 6% on Thursday. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Chris, I was looking for the mobile numbers, looking to make sure we're continuing to see mobile ad revenue growth. And we, we are seeing that is now more than 30% of total advertising uh, revenue. That's up from the previous quarter of 23%, which is up from 14%. So we are seeing some you know accelerations here. The key is just growth, continuing to see growth in both usage. And how are they monetizing this base? How's that ad revenue going to continue to grow? How are they using graph search? How are they using the platform to be able to grow and monetize off now more than $1.1 billion users around the world who use Facebook and will continue to use it, how are they going to profit off that growth? And while it wasn't all wine and roses, Jason, when you, when you look at the mobile number, I mean, this is a business for Facebook that basically didn't exist a year ago. No, you're right. It did. It. I mean, I, I applaud them for making that move because it's a necessary one. And I think really the big bet that they're placing is on this Facebook home uh, dynamic, the app that essentially takes over your smartphone. If they can pull that off, if they if they reel people in there to really create and, and develop that engagement factor, then I think they have they have a good shot at really uh, developing a, a long term monetizable model. If this doesn't work out for them, though, I think that'll be a big hit. Uh, and, and really, who knows what can go there? But the price today certainly still reflects a lot of optimism. You know, Chris, one thing that they talked about is just the expense line. The expense line continues to grow as they make these investments, and that has an impact on margins. And really, ultimately, it comes down to profits, Ron. And you start looking at a company like Facebook, they have to continue to grow the top line. Also, investors have to see that go to the bottom line to get really excited. And I think when they look out in the near term and those operating expenses continue to grow, that is one factor that investors may be worried about. LinkedIn down 10% Friday morning after first quarter earnings. Uh, help me out here, Jason. Revenue nearly doubled. <laughs> Profit more than quadrupled. Why the drop? Well, I, okay, so the, ultimately the 10-second takeaway here for investors is that they need to be looking at today's drop as really, I think, an opportunity to buy into an excellent company. These guys are still really – they're firing on all cylinders. This is the only way I can really put it. And if you look at it today, 225 million uh, registered users – yeah, I didn't mean to take Ron's line. I was going to say, I think, I, think I, get a, I get a royalty gonna, every time it goes credit, out, so we're good. I was going to you for we're it. But, uh, but no, I mean, 225 million registered users now. Engagement continues to improve. They have more than 18,000 corporate clients now, and they just Past their price increase. So, going through the call, the big concern I think was you know, they make their revenue from three different main buckets in marketing, premium subscriptions, and talent. Now, marketing is the one that kind of falls in the middle there, and they're sort of revamping and adjusting their marketing strategy to, to bring more mobile into, into play there. And they saw a slight tick down in that marketing revenue. I think that tick down probably. Uh, you know, had some people jump and ship today, and, and that's the big problem there. But really, the long term picture is it remains. These guys are really doing well. Yeah, I think I think uh, Jason's right about the tick down there, but also they said they were going to be spending more, 
because, quite frankly, they're still a relatively young company. They need to spend to scale this business. And I just think there are the wrong investors in this stock right now. If you're selling this stock off in a significant way to the tune of 9 or 10% based on this earnings report, right. well, you shouldn't have owned the stock in the first place. It's not a value investment. You can't be looking at quarterly beats and one cent here, two cents there. This is a long-term play, and the company's doing fantastic. When you step back and you look at these social media stocks, LinkedIn, Facebook, even Yelp, which earlier this week, uh, and obviously it's a much smaller player. I think the the market cap's around two billion. But Yelp was up twenty five percent this week based off of their earnings. They, you know, in Yelp and Facebook, it's very much an ad model. In LinkedIn, it's very much a membership model. Is membership automatically that much better? Or I mean, how how do you guys think about the two models just as as they stack up as they relate to these stocks? I think a lot of it is an expectations game. I mean, Yelp, certainly the expectations were very low. And when they brought in that actual top-line revenue growth, that's what encouraged the market. Uh, but, but that's one of one of my holdbacks on something like a Facebook or a Yelp. One of the things that, that gives me caution there is the fact that they're so based on advertising. You see kind of where Google is nowadays. I think Google makes a lot of their money from advertising, 95% or so. They've really done a great job in sort of shaping that online advertising environment over the past decade. Uh, Facebook and Yelp are still relatively new to that game and have a lot to prove. Uh, so that's where I look at something like a LinkedIn. That's why it's so much more attractive because they make their money from a number of different uh, – they make their money a number of different ways. And advertising is just really a small part of it. Yeah, in general, I like membership better because I think it aligns the company with its customers in, in, in a much more significant way versus the advertising model where your end user you're really not aligned with in, in any significant way. So membership, recurring, sticky, I like it much better. All right, shares of Visa up this week after strong second quarter earnings. The company also raised guidance. Uh, Ron, that's always a nice duo right there. Yeah, company did really well. If you uh, take out some adjustments for some tax benefits, profits were up 17%. Um, beat expectations, raise guidance, as you said. So, uh, firing at all cylinders, that's the second royalty I get. <laughs> Can I pay myself? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, you know, I think the company is doing great. I mean, it's, uh, a, it's a large company at this point. We're, we're, we're pushing 180, uh, with 115 billion market cap. So, I don't think it's necessarily cheap, but I do think that they're putting up great numbers. Okay, so the Pepsi to Visa's Coke is, of course, MasterCard, also reporting this week. First quarter profit up 12%, but Andy, they missed on revenue. Uh, the, the stock rebounded later in the week, but when you look at MasterCard, what do you see? Yeah, well, as, as Ron said, the same thing with Visa. These are just beautiful businesses. They have deep moats. They have high recurring um, revenue streams. They have exceptional margins. I mean, uh, MasterCard's operating profit margins are almost exceeding 50%. The returns on capital extremely high. So these wow. are great businesses. I mean, their EPS line for MasterCard was still up 17%. You know, X some currency factors. That's right in line with what they expect to do over the next three to four years. So I don't let the the short term quarterly you know kind of um, gyrations affect my decision with a company like Mastercard. Interesting enough, it is a sixty five billion dollar company, about the same as Facebook. They do about the same amount in revenues. Yet Mastercard generates far more profit. So on a profitability standpoint and a multiple standpoint. MasterCard looks much more reasonable, even though still at 20 times profits, 20 times earnings, it's um, it's a little bit on the higher side. But for the business and the quality of the business, it's hard to beat a company like MasterCard. Both MasterCard and Visa 
shares hitting all-time highs this week. Uh, from a valuation standpoint, Ron, how's, how's Visa looking? A little, little frothy? A little frothy. MasterCard edges it out just a bit at four times cash flow EBITDA, um, 16 times for Visa. So MasterCard's just a tiny bit cheaper. Okay, do I get royalties for frothy? I <laughs> no. mean, if we're talking royalties, here, let's, let's get this out of the tape. Coming up, just because the critics don't love it doesn't mean a movie can't make an insane amount of money. The latest example is next. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, Andy Cross, and Ron Gross. DreamWorks Animation first quarter profit fell 39%, but investors were expecting a loss and uh, uh, shares up this week around 10%. A lot of the credit for the quarter went to The Crudes, an animated movie about a prehistoric family. The reviews were so-so, and families, Jason, still went in droves. I had to double-check. <laughs> Would you say they flocked? I had to double-check this number because I didn't believe it the first time I read it. The worldwide gross receipts for this film, $480 million. Wow. Yeah, you got to really give them, give them a round of applause for that because, I mean, that's the, the expectations for these guys going into this quarter were extremely minimal. And so to bring in uh, 5 or $6 million in net income was, was obviously a big win for them. Uh, with that said, I think there is a correlation here, mind you, as to when The Crudes was released because, as we've noted, there wasn't anything else out there. Right. right? I mean, you either stay at home or you, you take your kids to this movie. Th- that is now, a strategy and an art to, after, to after, time a film. I'm going to throw Mac under the bus here. After his review of this movie, I chose not to take my kids to the movie, and we stayed at home. And so uh, maybe we'll catch it. Uh, you know, maybe we'll catch it on on demand or something like that. But I, I do think that they face a greater headwind in something like a Walt Disney that continues to just to churn out hit after hit after hit. They're sitting on their next billion dollar movie here with Iron Man three, and so with DreamWorks, it is to me a classic value investment. When you see the stock, uh, you know, reaching highs like it is today after a hit like the Crudes, I think that's when investors probably need to be looking at selling. Selling this stock and wait for them to kind of come back down because they will, uh, and then you can maybe look at buying it again. It's it's not one that I would recommend holding on to for a long period of time. Uh, Ron, to Jason's point, Disney shares hit a new all time high this week. Uh, last weekend, Iron Man three opened overseas, took in one hundred ninety five million. This weekend, it opens in the U S., China, Russia, Germany. Uh, it, it really does seem like uh, they're just going to be printing money on this one. Disney's a wonderful company, and, and they do so well in all of their segments, especially the, the ESPN that we, we speak about often. Um, I, this is one of those stocks I sold too early on valuation. Not the first time I've said that on this show. <laughs> um, but I actually, uh, my kids still own it, and they are they're proud shareholders, um, and I expect we will be for quite some time. Yeah, to put that just into perspective, too, you remember, the, so if Iron Man 3 is another billion-dollar movie, well, their studio segment is responsible for only about 7% of their operating income, Walt Disney's operating income. And I think that just shows you how this company makes their money so many different ways and in relation to to how profitable they really can be. You know, interesting that uh, DreamWorks is less than two billion dollars in market cap, and I think the price that Disney paid for Pixar was more than six billion. How many years ago? More than ten years ago. So, just the relative value that DreamWorks has right now, and the relative value that Disney paid for Pixar, and the value that Pixar and has created a, yeah, over yeah. the years Continuing for Disney and for the yeah. franchise, and will continue to generate for many years to come. Shares of Buffalo Wild Wings down this week. First quarter earnings fell 11%, much worse than expected. And yet, Andy, the company still bullish on the full year, uh, maintaining their guidance. What do you think? Yeah, I think it was still a really good quarter. I mean, like um, we talked about this a little bit on Investor Beat. You know, it's interesting because. The thing I love about um, Buffalo Wild Wings is just the management team they have in place. 
Um, and uh, Sally Smith. Yeah, Sally Smith, Mary Twine. I mean, they just have been there for so many years. They're reinvesting back in the business. They have faced some higher chicken prices, chicken wing prices. That's starting to mitigate a little bit throughout the quarter, but they certainly saw that last quarter. They are going to this new pricing schedule based on the pounds, not based on the number of wings you actually get. So the confidence I have in in Sally and Mary to be able to uh, navigate those kind of environments, they've been through this before, they are reinvesting back in the customer experience, really trying to grow the store base, do it right. That Having that track record really helps when you kind of face these headwinds. And, and I still I own the stock personally, and I still like it long term. Uh, let's stick with restaurants, because last week... Bob Thompson, the CEO of McDonald's, uh, said in an interview that McDonald's is very seriously considering moving to serving breakfast all day. Mm. And, Ron, when you consider they've got locations that are open 24 hours, this this seems like, to me anyway, uh, this could be a significant win for them. What do you think? It's an interesting move. They have to do something. They've had three consecutive quarters of declining profits, um, and they they really have to kind of shake it off a bit and come up with something new. Um, rising commodity costs um, are hard to – when you have a dollar value menu, it's hard to make money when you have commodity costs rising. <laughs> um, so they've got to do something. My gut tells me it's not the right thing for them in terms of hurting their kitchen efficiency, the spoilage that will occur. I don't think the demand will be there to offset the costs, but – I think we'll watch it and we'll see see what happens. Uh, I got to give a shout out to our colleague Charlie Travers, uh, who flagged a really great article in Fast Company magazine uh, about Taco Bell. It was a, a, a long article, basically giving the backstory on the Doritos Locos Taco, which. For for all the fun we had talking about that product and just the whole notion <laughs> of a Doritos taco shell, um, here are a couple of numbers to to mull over. In the first year, they sold around 450 million of these tacos. And here's a direct quote from Taco Bell CEO Greg Creed: "We had to hire about 15,000 people last year, which is two or three per restaurant, to handle the sales growth and demand of the Doritos Locos taco business." That's that's staggering that it would have that kind of ripple effect. And when we, you know, when we look at restaurants and how they're trying to pull different levers, it's it's just amazing to me that a significant move like serving breakfast all day, by your way of thinking, Ron, that's not going to that's going to do it. But in this case, here's one. Yeah. It's not even one new product. It's one new shell. And it it's wa- a new taco and shell. And it wasn't a little bet. It was, um, you know, they, there were some costs associated here. And they actually didn't even have a contract. It was kind of a handshake. Taco Bell said, we're going to spend some money. The Doritos folks said, we're going to spend some money and we're going to get this done. Um, so it was really interesting um, that it all worked out for them because it wasn't it wasn't a cheap undertaking. They have marketed the heck out of this thing, too. I mean, that's you could just turn on the TV at any given time and you'll see a commercial you know, pushing these things. So they've really, really created awareness for them. I mean, the thing about these stores that in a, in a world of U.S. growth, which is, I mean, I know they're global companies, but in U.S. growth where you're at like, you know, 2 to 3%, you are definitely pulling levers and making investments and not inconsequential bets. We're seeing this with things like Taco Bell, KFCs. I talked about this before. KFCs, I eat the bones concept, you know. <laughs> All right, Ron Gross, Andy Cross, Jason Moser. Guys, we'll see you later in the show. Coming up, we'll get a few tips on how to invest in a completely different way with horse race betting expert Stephen Chris, Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. I get money from you.
Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. This weekend, the Kentucky Derby kicks off horse racing's Triple Crown. And with the Preakness and Belmont Stakes still to come, this week, an encore presentation of my interview with Stephen Christ. He's written several books on horse racing and betting, and he is the publisher and chairman of the Daily Racing Forum, which is to horse players what the Wall Street Journal is to investors. Let's just talk horse betting in general. I'm a complete novice, so what are the sort of the major factors that I should consider when I'm thinking about betting on a horse? Well, the major thing you should do to be totally self-serving is to buy and study the daily racing form. <laughs> uh, you know, just as an investor would uh, would read the Wall Street Journal and uh, you know various reports and websites, but uh, you know, as uh, people in your world like to say, past performance is no guarantee, you know, of future results. But it's sure the best place to start. Um, are there factors that people tend to? overvalue? Is that one of them? Like just looking at, well, this horse has done well the last few races, so that'll absolutely continue in the future? Well, I I think there are factors that people overvalue, especially uh, very casual fans. Uh, For example, I think that uh, people who go to the racetrack once a year think that the jockeys are terribly, terribly important and that it's a good idea to spend time studying the records of the jockeys. Uh, I, I think that's largely a waste of time. Uh, I mean, I have a tremendous amount of respect for the physical risks that these guys take and, and the skills that they have. But, uh, you know, at a, at a top track like Belmont or Churchill Downs, you know, the top ten riders, they're so close in ability, you could practically assign the mounts out of a hat, and the races would pretty much come out the same way. Uh, there's a reason it's called horse racing and not jockey racing. <laughs> now, that's surprising to me, because uh, here at The Motley Fool, we, we sort of have the horse versus jockey debate from time to time. We do it, though, in terms of businesses and just saying, you know, looking at a business or an industry... And the jockey, in this case, is the CEO and thinking, okay, well, Bill Gates uh, did really well at Microsoft. If you put him in charge of IBM uh, for 15 years, would would the same results occur? And it seems like, at least in the world of investing, there are CEOs who really could succeed in almost any environment, whereas others sort of... Um, uh, I guess, caught the lucky horse, to, to use your parlance, but really, jockeys don't matter that much at all? No, I, I think you've got the wrong analogy, um, because it's really the trainer who's the CEO, not the jockey. Uh, I mean, the, the jockey frequently meets the horse for the first time six minutes before he, he rides him. Uh, he is not managing the horse's life and career in the way that a trainer is. Uh, so I think most experienced and successful horse players pay a lot more attention to trainers than they do to jockeys. Now, you've been doing this for a long time. You, uh, you went to Harvard University. You were, I, I, do I have this correct? You were studying literature? Uh, yes, I, I was studying Renaissance poetry. And uh, one night a classmate said, you want to go to the dog track? And I said, what's a dog track? And uh, two hours later, my career as a student of Renaissance literature was pretty much over. I just fell in love with it immediately and uh, tried to figure out a way to get paid to go to the racetrack. <laughs> You went to Wonderland. I, I, having gone to school in the Boston area, I know that track. Yeah, it, uh, ba- back in the 70s, it was just a charming, festive place. And wow, racing dogs wearing different colored blankets. And, you know, to me, the eureka moment was when I uh, 
bought a program and saw that there was some sort of correlation between all those numbers and how the races turned out, and I've, uh, you know, wasted the last 30 years pursuing those correlations. <laughs> now, what has been, I mean, 30 years, that's a long time in any industry. What, what's been the biggest change when it comes to horse race betting over the last 30 years that you've seen? Well, it's gotten a lot more sophisticated. I mean, one of the things that I've spent a lot of my career in racing doing was working to improve the the breadth and the quality of the information that horse players get. I mean, they used to get pretty sketchy uh, information in the racing form. And, you know, when I started out, I'd have to supplement what was in there with, you know, hours a day of my own research. And uh, first with a paper called The Racing Times, and, and then, uh, you know, when a group of us bought the racing form uh, more than 10 years ago, we really tried to upgrade that information and save people, you know, all that independent research and just put a lot more info into those past performances. You're listening to Motley Fool Money, talking with Stephen Christ from the Daily Racing Forum. Uh, let's talk about your business, because this is a, a paper that goes back to the 1890s. Um, how is business? Well, business is fine because we've managed to uh, branch out uh, into online. I mean, nobody's getting rich, you know, publishing uh, newspaper newspapers anymore. Uh, but our past performances are something that, that work very, very well uh, over the Internet. And we've been able to add an, an interactive quality to them that you obviously don't have on a dead tree. Uh, in the people who access our past performances online, they can click on a trainer's name and research a wealth of statistics about that trainer. They can click on the date of the race and watch a video replay of that race and, and get a chart. Uh, so it's, it's really turned something that was two-dimensional into something three-dimensional. And it's, uh, you know, the difference between now and 20 years ago in terms of the information that a horse player can access is just staggering. So the Internet, it sounds like, the, has helped your business more than hurt it. Uh, it has very much so. Uh, you know, a lot of people now download their past performances instead of driving out to a newsstand in the middle of the night to get the form when it comes off the truck. Uh, you know, we're, we're still going to be a print product for a long time. And, you know, I would say that, that most of our customers over the age of 40, you know, use the paper version, and most of our customers under the age of 40 use the online version. Now, I'm not thinking about quitting my job anytime soon and changing careers, but I'm just curious, to what extent can people make real money, make a, even a career out of betting on horses? You, you, you see this or you read about people who uh, make money as a living being a poker player or something like that. Uh, to what extent can people do that with betting on horses? It's a lot harder with, with horses, and I'd be surprised if there are 100 people in America uh, who are really making a, a good living betting the horses. Uh, the, the problem isn't that it's, you know, so impossible uh, to, to pick winners, uh, but racing has a massive takeout race. I mean, on every race, only 80% of the money that's bet is returned to the customers. Uh, and, you know, after about 25 or 30 races, everybody is theoretically broke. I mean, can you imagine if there were a 20% takeout on every, you know, stock trade that was made 
all the money would move from the customers to the house pretty rapidly. Uh, you know, and that's the price that's paid for the cost of, you know, maintaining racetracks and putting on the races and everything else. And it's really the biggest problem in, in racing and, and why it doesn't grow and why there aren't more professional bettors. Uh, that 20% of, of every bet that's made, that's a huge bite. That's still a smaller bite than the state lottery. I mean, aren't states taking like 40%, 50%? Yes, they are. And how many people are making a full-time living playing the state lottery? <laughs> good point. Good point. <laughs> In the same way, look, anyone can have a good year or, you know, hit a pick six that pays $100,000. I mean, people do win all the time. Uh, but but it's, a, it's a tough living to grind it out day by day fighting that 20% ticket. How has your approach to betting on horses changed over the last 30 years? What's, what's really been sort of the biggest shift, or has there been no shift at all? No, I think there's been a, a pretty big shift in that when I, I started out, I really thought that, that the whole game was just divining the most likely winner of the race and, and that it was about picking winners. But at some point, the light bulb went on uh, that it really was a game that was as much about value as it was about picking winners. Uh, you know, there are horses who are great bets at three to one, and the same horse is a terrible bet at even money. I mean, I think similarly, you know, with, with buying stocks, there are wonderful companies, you know, whose stock is overpriced at any given moment, and it would be a bad investment, even if it's a good company. And there are plenty of good horses, uh, you know, including the upcoming favorite in the Belmont Stakes, who are good horses and the most likely winner of a race, but terrible investments at a very short price. Uh, it's really, you know, like any sophisticated type of investing involving the public, what you look for are for the public to make mistakes in valuation and to take advantage of those mistakes. So it's, it's not enough to be able to say, gee, this horse looks like he's the best horse in the field. You have to equally, if not more so, consider his price and his value. Now, I have to move this over to the world of investing in stocks, um, because the way you're talking makes me think that you're also as adept at investing in stocks as you are at betting on horses. I know you don't do it for a living the way, the way you cover horse racing, but how do you manage your money? Is it by investing? No, I, I uh, totally cowardly safe. I mean, what whatever money I have sits in savings accounts and nice safe bonds. I, I have enough risk in my daily horse playing, uh, and it takes up my time. And I find it more entertaining than you know studying uh, companies and executives and, and PE ratios. So uh, I you know I save my risk for fooling around at the, at the racetrack, but I, I keep my money pretty much under the mattress. You're listening to Motley Fool Money talking with Stephen Christ. From the Daily Racing Forum, we will wrap up with a round of buy, sell, or hold. Let's start with uh, another popular way to bet money. Buy, sell, or hold, blackjack. Buy. Uh, blackjack is one of the only, if not the only, game in which an intelligent player who is educated about the game can expect to turn a profit in a casino. So uh, of all the casino games, buy blackjack. I think I know how you're going to answer this, but I'll ask anyway. Buy, sell, or hold slots? Sell. It's just that. It's just throwing your money away, isn't it? 
there's no such thing as correct strategy. There's no nothing you can do to improve your chances. If you sit there long enough, you'll lose about 10% of your investment, minute after minute, hour after hour. Um, I, I don't understand why people play them. I, I guess just for the chance of hitting some kind of giant jackpot, but uh, it's, it's a bad bet. You used to work at the New York Times. Buy, sell, or hold the likelihood that the New York Times will still offer a print edition in 10 years. Oh, bye. I, I think they absolutely will. I, I don't think us elderly people are going to die off quite that quickly. You're a former editor of the Harvard Lampoon, and this guy, not at the same time as you, but he did also write for the Harvard Lampoon. Buy, sell, or hold Conan O'Brien. Oh, definitely buy. I think he's great. We we sort of just missed each other. He got there right after I graduated, I think. But uh, I, I'm a big fan. You Harvard guys just stick together. You That's can say. it. It's a conspiracy. <laughs> uh, and finally, some people swear by these. Buy, sell, or hold. Good luck charms. Sell. They, there's obviously no such thing as a good luck charm. But, you know, if it makes you feel better, it's harmless. <laughs> Much better than a good luck charm. Check out Stephen's blog online at drf.com. He is the publisher and chairman of the Daily Racing Forum. Stephen Chris, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Coming up, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. This is Motley Fool Money. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio once again, Jason Moser, Andy Cross, and Ron Gross. Uh, before we get to the stocks on our radar this week, one, one other story we, we should get to, which is um, Kraft, the gigantic Kraft Foods reported earnings this week. Uh, but... Frankly, I don't care about their earnings, um, but here's what I do <laughs> no care about. No one else did. <laughs> uh, exactly, which is one of, their, one of their brands, one of their many brands, which is Kool-Aid. Uh, the Kool-Aid Man, I think we all remember the Kool-Aid Man from growing up. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, the Kool-Aid Man mascot first appeared in 1954, and he just got a makeover uh, within the last couple of weeks uh, in TV ads. Now he's like a CGI animated. Um, he now has pants and a jacket <laughs> Thank and God. shoes. They slimmed him down which makes no sense because he's a pitcher. Like, I don't know why he needs to be more athletic. Um, but from a business standpoint, it, it now comes in a liquid mix. Yeah, pretty cool. Um, I, I was actually happy to see that there's a, you know, a business rationale. It wasn't just someone walked into a room and said, yeah, I think it's time to change the old man. They, you know, the, the liquid mix business has been crushing Kool-Aid over the last couple of years. And the creepy marketing has Mr. Kool-Aid Man opening up his closet to see the, all the different flavors to decide what he wants to wear that day. He gives himself a little squirt, and that's what his outfit so it's is just, for the wait, day. Wait, I haven't seen this yet. So he's just like... A, Clear water, and then he's pouring a little. <laughs> yeah, lic- yeah, exactly. And so he goes out, you know, cherry or grape or you know whatever he feels for the day. Steve, what do you think of this? I know you're just hearing this for the first time. What do you think? Is this going to succeed for Kraft? Is this rebranding of Kool Aid? Do you think it's going to help them? I have no idea. I do drink a lot of Mio. Do you guys know what Mio is? Mio is the. I think they invented. I believe they did this liquid kind of concentrated thing, and uh, I, I drink it all the time. Cra- so. That's that's a Kraft product. All right. Well, then I'm all for it. Bring it on, Kool Aid <laughs> like man. Like how we said, I have no idea when you guys. I'm going to start using that. 
Um, in all seriousness, we, a couple of years ago, we were talking about Tang and how Tang was this oh, just moribund, I think I know where you go. languishing product, and they were able to just significantly ramp up sales. Uh, sale annual sales for Kool Aid three hundred thirty eight million. Is this the next billion dollar brand for Kraft? What do you think, Ron? Oh gosh, I'm going to take the Steve tact and say I have no idea. I think not. No, I think it'll be a nice incremental business, but I don't think it's a billion dollar business. I'm rooting for him. How can you? Not and we should encourage users to send us different flavors so we could try it out, as they did with Tang. They were very kind. Absolutely, yeah. we had we had people sending us Tang from literally around the world. So yeah, and I haven't seen this new liquid mix product. So by all means, if you want to, you know, just put some in a little package, send it off to Full Global headquarters in Alexandria, Virginia. We love product. We're always fans of product. Um, let's get to the stocks on our radar. Ron Gross, you're up first. And yes, Steve, our man from the other side of the glass, will be hitting you with a question. Hasn't he spoken enough today? Yeah. Well, I've got Activision for you. ATVI. Uh, it's a company after many years of patient ownership. It has finally woken from its slumber. Stock has performed well. Um, they report next week. I definitely want to hear what they have to say about their capital allocation program. Dividends, share buybacks, acquisitions, $4 billion of cash, no debt. Very important to the thesis here. And of course, I want to check up on their franchises and see how they're doing. Steve, question about Activision? So I've owned and sold Activision. <laughs> uh, it's been the kind of stock that the you know Call of Duty 4 will come out and it's this blockbuster thing. You hear in the news, it made more money today than any Hollywood, every movie in history combined. <laughs> and the stock continued to go nowhere or go down. What, <laughs> what, what is wrong with this company? Well, you might be exaggerating a bit there, but yes, I, I understand your point. And that's, that's why I did lead with the fact that finally it's woken up. We never understood why it didn't. They kept putting up better and better numbers each year. Nobody seemed to care. It is a tough model, kind of like the movie model. You constantly have to reinvent you know, the next game, the next big thing. But finally it has woken up and it started to do well for us. I like that Steve's question was essentially, what the hell? <laughs> You're blaming me. Uh, what, and, what about me? Uh, Andy Cross, your stock this week. Whole Foods uh, reports uh, and symbol uh, WFM, the or, or large organic grocer with 300 stores um, and one right down the street where I know most of us um, spend a lot of our um, lunchtime. Uh, I'm looking for gross margin. I mean, for grocers that are not typically very profitable. I mean, operating profits run in the, in the, in the low single digits, um, except for Whole Foods is, is on the higher side. So gross margin is really important. Uh, second quarter of last year was an all-time record for them, more than 36%. Um, they're not expecting much better than that, but I want to see how that is impacting uh, or, or how they are um, – Doing on the gross margin side because it gets to the fact of how many how much people are willing to pay for the higher prices at Whole Foods. Steve, can Whole Foods ever be more than a grocery store? It's a good question. So, like whether they, they they're getting into different um, areas like um, catering, perhaps like that's a big part of I mean, the Whole Foods store. I mean, three hundred stores. You know that they they have some room to run here with smaller concepts, smaller store um, bases, and more products. I mean, they've moved more and more into. Even down here locally, Steve, with our with our Alexandra store on the outside of the store aisles, moving to more packaged goods, moving to more prepared foods. They have a bar now down in our Alexandria store. So I think they do have these concepts inside the whole grocer. But it's a conscious capitalism business. business. John Mackey founded it. He's running the show. And it will continue to do well if he continues to work on uh, the things that, that got him there. You had me at bar. Yeah. Uh, we got less than a minute left, Jason. What do you got? Uh, Clean Harbors, ticker uh, CLH. And these guys operate in the exciting business of hazmat, environmental cleanups, chemical cleaning, things like that. So uh, it's still a small business, about $3.5 billion company. Uh, they have uh, clocked in growth, revenue growth, about 
27% annually over the last three years. So they're growing quickly. But I like the business, basically, because they do a lot of stuff that a lot of other people can't do. Uh, this industry has very high uh, barriers to entry as far as economically speaking, regula- uh, regulations. Uh, so interesting company. They they uh, Diverse revenue stream. The big, the big segment for them is their technical services segment. And uh, I think the stock today at 20 times estimates is a good deal. Steve? Are you betting on bad things to happen with this company? No, I'm actually betting on a giant Kool-Aid spill, and I think that's going to be a real impetus to growth in the business. Oh, yeah. That'll do it. Jason Moser, Andy Cross, Ron Gross. Guys, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks, thanks Chris. That's going to do it for this edition of Motley Fool Money. Our engineer is Steve Broido. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.